Awesome. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to worship. We're pumped that you're here and that you've made worship a priority today. You know, I believe the devil does everything he can to keep couples or to actually have couples have sex before they're married. And I believe the devil does everything he can to keep couples from having sex after they're married. In the Bible, sex is this marvelous, holy, wonderful gift that God has given us. But if couples are going to really grow together and mature in their relationship, one important part of that is growing together in sexual intimacy. Now, as we begin today, I just want to be sure that you know that I believe I understand the people to whom and, and with whom I'm having this discussion. For instance, there are so many listening right now who are single and have never been married. I'm talking also to a lot of married couples. I'm talking to a good number of people who are single again after divorce. I'm talking to some who are separated currently. That's their situation. And of course, I'm talking to a good number of people who are widowed. Their spouse passed away. But I dare to believe that every one of us, no matter what your current situation, can benefit from this biblically-based discussion. I believe you'll not only be challenged through today's teaching, but I believe you can go and encourage other people to grow in marriage, in sexual intimacy. Now, Scripture teaches us that sexual intimacy in marriage is meant to be this wonderful gift from God, very mutually satisfying experience. But here's my question. Why why is that often not the case? Why does the attempt at intimacy in marriage leave so many couples frustrated, discontented, and wondering what has gone wrong here? I think today's message will speak to some of the reasons for that. In the book called Song of Solomon, sometimes it's called the Song of Songs in the Older Testament, there's a celebration of satisfying sexual intimacy in marriage. Now, if you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, I want to warn you, this is not a G-rated book. Uh, it's actually so explicit at points, although it's in poetic imagery, but it's so real, so specific, that some of the early church fathers struggled with it, whether it should even be in the Bible. At various periods throughout history, uh, young people who were under 13 years old were not allowed to even read this book. They felt that it would be inappropriate for them at that age. I also realized today that this is an incredibly sensitive topic. Just the very topic of text brings up and can trigger pain for some people for a multitude of reasons. I'm empathetic with that. I really am. I also know that some of you, either because of your family of origin or because, and or because of church teaching you've received, you may believe that sex is this ugly, dirty, 
shameful thing that we should never, ever talk about. Nothing could be further from the truth. According to the Bible, I'll say it again, intimacy in marriage is this pure and holy gift from God. It's meant to be enjoyed and celebrated in the covenant of marriage between a man and woman. So I invite you to go on this journey today. I want to point out a number of principles that I believe come straight out of the text in Song of Solomon. We're going to start in chapter 4 in just a moment. And I, I want us, as we study this, hopefully to get a more holistic, biblical, healthy view of intimacy as it's practiced in the context of marriage. So here we go. The first principle is that affirming verbal communication fosters closeness. As we pick this up in the Song of Solomon, Solomon is with his bride, this Shulamite woman that he has married, and he simply calls her beloved. They're actually in the bedroom as we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil, that's a reference to the wedding veil, are doves. So get the picture here. The husband and wife are alone in the bedroom. She's moving toward him, perhaps feeling a bit insecure, self-conscious, wondering how she looks. And he begins immediately to affirm her with warm, encouraging words, genuineness that help create this emotional intimacy. He's saying, look, this is how you look to me. Your eyes behind your veil are like doves. I mean, I got to tell you, as you read on here, this husband, he's, he's as smooth as butter. Probably not like most men, to be honest, but this husband is really scoring big here. He's seeing her not as an object, but for what she really is in all of her wonderfulness. And then he goes on with the verbal compliments. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Now, husbands, let's huddle up here for a minute, just the husbands, okay? Just want to say, if you're trying to woo your wife, I would avoid that line. I'm just saying, honey, your hair is like a flock of goats. I, I don't think that's going to help a lot, to be quite honest. Now, it's good that we can chuckle at the cultural differences here, but please understand this is actually a very erotic verse because Jewish women in this culture would have had their hair up, and as he takes the pen out of her hair, it falls down gently on her shoulders. This is an erotic moment. And then he goes on and begins to talk about other parts of her body. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Now, again, that would mean they're white. Uh, sheep just shorn, usually the outer wool is a little more dirty, and so that's been shorn off, and now it's only that white wool. So that's the picture here. Each one has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Each one has its twin means, hey, cool thing. You have all your teeth, all right? That's what he's saying here. In this culture, that would have been a really cool thing, believe it or not. Your teeth are as white as sheep, and they're all there, okay? 
So maybe you can use that line. I don't know, depending on which county in upstate New York. Forget it, forget it, just strike that out. Never mind. The point is that this married couple is having fun together. You kind of sense it as you read on here. They're smiling. They're not uptight. Their inhibitions are beginning to fade away. And he continues exploring her beauty. Beauty, verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now, do you see what's happening here? In this wonderful, holy moment of intimacy, his affirming words are creating this atmosphere where intimacy can flourish. They're completely vulnerable with one another. What a marvelous scene. And this affirming verbal communication is helping create that. Now, my guess is right now, some of the guys are thinking, all right, pastor, what does communication have to do with sexual intimacy? And your wife would probably want to go just about everything, to be honest, just about everything. She probably wants to go, see, this is what I've been trying to tell you. It means so much that we feel connected long before the bedroom. Now, listen, men, if the verbal affirmation only starts in the bedroom, it's probably going to feel rather manipulative. Your wife wants to be connected to you all throughout the day. She wants you to share in her world. She wants you to take interest in her life and talk about all kinds of things. She wants you to be a sounding board that she can bounce things off of. She wants to talk frequently and hear what you have to say and what you think. You should call throughout the day, perhaps, and say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Buy her a gift when she's not expecting it. It'll be a surprise. Or maybe she could find a handwritten note of encouragement. To make this kind of communication happen probably requires turning off the TV or closing down the laptop computer. And really being focused and look into her eyes. Josh McDowell says the chief dysfunction in failing marriages is not sexual but verbal. Fulfilled marriages are enjoyed by those who share their feelings and have a great amount of openness with their spouse. So what I want you to see first here is in this holy moment of intimacy, there's this wonderful affirming communication going on, and it's setting a marvelous environment. So husbands, I want to quickly ask you, when was the last time you looked deeply into your wife's eyes and shared verbally how much she means to you? When was the last time that you wrote a note and maybe just listed a few of the things about her that are really precious to you and that you really, really appreciate 
Affirming words help create an atmosphere where intimacy can just flourish. Secondly, another principle here is appealing visual stimulation heightens anticipation. It's commonly noted that men are visually driven and stimulated. I think that's so well known. It's kind of a no-brainer. And in this intimate scene in their bedroom that we're privileged to get a little glimpse into here, she is secure enough to allow him to see her fully. Notice, she doesn't come out in old sweatpants with a face full of zip cream and say, I guess you're expected to have sex tonight, huh? No. I sense her attitude is that she wants to be the best she can be for her husband. And husbands and wives, let me speak to your heart just for a moment here. 99% of the people I know, 99%, I think, look the best they're ever going to look on their wedding day. Would you agree with that? I mean, especially if you're getting married kind of in the earlier years, maybe late teens even, or in your 20s, early 30s. I mean, pretty much you're looking the best. You're, it's all downhill from there, okay? I mean, we age, we get wrinkles, you give birth to children. As the Apostle Paul says, outwardly we're wasting away. Amen? We are. All you got to do to prove that is just look in the mirror. Outwardly, we're wasting away. And I simply urge you, married couples, to take on the challenge today to attend to your health and be the best you can be for your spouse. You don't have to be a beauty queen. You don't have to be so handsome to be on the cover of GQ magazine. It's a lot more than just that, but be the best you can be for your spouse. Third, heightened anticipation leads to greater satisfaction. As you get on through verse 4 here, you realize, wow, he's talking about her temples, her teeth, her neck, her eyes. He's halfway through. He hasn't even gotten below her neck yet. I mean, this is amazing, but don't miss the point. They're not in a hurry because satisfying intimacy takes time. It cannot be rushed. And hear me, this is a lesson that most of us husbands really need to learn. As someone has famously said, when it comes to sex, men are like microwaves, right? Get her done. Fast. Women are like crockpots. Right? That's the way the saying goes. You've heard it. Slow to even warm up. And then it still takes a long time. That's just the way it is. If men would learn to just slow down, hear me, it would solve a lot of sexual issues in marriage. So to help build anticipation throughout the day, perhaps you could leave a note or just send a text saying how much you're anticipating seeing your mate that evening. Oh, this would be awesome. Men, when you arrive home, why not say, you know what? You stop working, please. Go take a 45-minute nap at least. While you nap, I'm going to do some chores here around the house, and we'll have some fun later on this evening. 
Building anticipation leads to greater satisfaction. We look on down to verse 11, and he says, Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. My bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. He's telling his wife, you're the sweetest thing. You've got to be the sweetest thing in the world. This taste of my wife. Verse 13, by the way, is one of the more erotic verses in the Bible. This is one of those verses that caused some early church leaders to wonder if this book should even be in the Bible. Is it even appropriate? Now, remember, it's written with such metaphorical and poetic language that you may have trouble understanding parts of this and what it's really saying. But starting in verse 13, the focus is on her erogenous zones and then later on his. Verse 13, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You were a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Now, with all this poetic imagery here, you may have trouble immediately understanding what is actually being said here. But what I want you to take away is that sex for Solomon and his wife is this full-body, multi-sensory sort of experience. And they're fully engaged in it, and they're enjoying one another. Now, I know this is going to be stretching for some of you, but in the book of the Song of Solomon, and I encourage you to study it on your own. In fact, I have a sense there may be a lot of Bible study going on after this sermon today right here in the book of Song of Solomon, but it poetically describes all kinds of erotic ecstasy. Let me just quickly give you a few of them. You can look them up later. Kissing in chapter 1, verse 2. Fellatio, her initiative, chapter 2, verse 3. Manual stimulation, her initiative, chapter 2, verse 6. Erotic massage, his initiative, chapter 4, verse 5. Cunnilingus, his initiative, chapter 4, verse 12 and following. Striptease, chapter 6, verse 13 and following. And experimentation with new places and positions, including outdoors, her initiative, chapter 7, verse 11. If anyone needs oxygen right now, our medical teams are standing by. I just want you to be aware of that. It's amazing, isn't it? Some people don't realize that all of these things are described here in this book. And in all of this, they're taking their time. Because heightened anticipation leads to greater satisfaction. Another principle that flows out of this is that satisfying intimacy focuses on your spouse's pleasure more than your own. Now, if you haven't heard anything I've said so far, please Hear this part. As far as I can tell, our culture teaches that sex is a very selfish thing. Selfish. Magazines, movies, all forms of entertainment, all seem to send the same message. That when it comes to sex, the most important thing is, is are you getting pleasure? Are you getting satisfaction? 
Can I tell you something? If you enter marriage with that sort of entitlement mentality, things aren't going to go well. It isn't going to last over the long haul. Biblically, God teaches just the opposite of that. The marriage bed is to be a place of mutuality where our concern is for meeting the needs of our spouse, not just our own. I believe the greatest landmine that will destroy sexual intimacy quicker than anything else is selfishness. We must learn to focus on our spouse's pleasure and needs. Dr. Willard Harley, Harley Jr. has an illustration that he shares as a challenge for wives to be more sympathetic to their husband's sexual needs. And I'm going to share that with you now, but I want you to know that after I share it, I'm going to flip the tables a little bit and give a challenge to the men as well. But I love this analogy from Dr. Harley. He says, imagine there's this cup of water on the table, and the wife is sitting there on a stool by the table, and she can reach the water. The husband is there too, but he can't quite get to it. So he asks his wife politely, may I have a drink of water? She says, well, I'm kind of busy right now. Maybe I can in a couple hours give you a drink. He says, fine, that's great. Goes on. That evening, he asks again, may I, may I have a cup of water? She says, oh, I'm so tired right now. Got a little bit of a headache, but how about, how about tomorrow? He says, you know, no problem. Fine. So the next day, it's morning. He says, may I, may I have a drink of water? He says, well, you know, mornings aren't good for me. You know that. I've got so much on my mind today. Sometime later, he says, okay, that's all right. And that evening, he asks again, may I, may I have a drink of water? Because this thirst is, this thirst is just growing and and building, and, and she's the only one who can give him a drink of, of water. And by this time, he's not feeling quite as warm toward his wife. He's actually feeling more desperation than anything else. And she's sensing that in him, and she says, well, if that's your attitude, you may never get a drink. And the fourth day comes now, and he's kind of begging. He no longer feels much warmth toward his wife. But he's feeling this increasing sense of desperation, this physical thirst, and he begs his wife for a drink of water, and his wife says, fine, here's a drink, but drink it fast and don't ask me again for a drink of water tomorrow. Sadly, I think that's how it plays out in a lot of marriages. And hear me today, if that's the way it is, everybody is losing in that scenario. Dr. Harley uses that as an illustration to challenge wives to be more sensitive to meeting their husband's needs. But I think it would be good for husbands to hear an equal challenge right now. The reason your wife may feel reluctant about that drink of water, quite honestly, is because there's really nothing in her glass. There's nothing in the cup for her to give to you. Why? Because healthy intimacy is a whole lot more than just a physical act. It's mental. It's emotional. It's a spiritual thing as well. And sir, I would say to you, if not, you're not filling her cup emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally. 
then mere physical intimacy is just going to feel cheap, shallow, and frustrating. And trust me, if they felt it would be appropriate, a lot of wives would shout amen right now. But there's a fifth principle I want us to see as we quickly move on. Sexual intimacy flourishes best when we realize it's a gift from God. I would love to shout this statement from the housetops. Sex is God's idea. He created it. He dreamed it up. God has called sex within marriage honorable and holy. That's what scripture says. But here's the problem. Historically, the church has pretty much dropped the ball when it comes to teaching an accurate, holistic, biblical view of sexuality. As I said earlier, many of us grew up in church with a basic idea that sex is this ugly, shameful, horrible thing. But the Bible says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Sexuality within marriage is celebrated in Scripture. God actually applauds it. But the church has often had a different attitude. In fact, did you know that the church, particularly in the Middle Ages, it started really in about the third century, but it developed and became more complex, had a calendar. The institutional church had a calendar of sanctioned days when it was okay for husbands and wives to be sexually active. Did you know this? 40 days before Christmas was out. And 40 days before Easter was out, no wonder people hated the holidays, right? And then Friday was out because that's the day Jesus died. Saturday's out because that's the Sabbath and supposedly sex is work. Sunday's out because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Now think about that. Kiss the whole weekend goodbye. That is outrageous. But that's what the calendar said. And you add up all the days that you weren't supposed to have sex... You're left with roughly 40 days in the year that you can actually, it's okay for a husband and wife to have sex. Now, I want to be crystal clear. That is not what the Bible teaches. But that's what the church calendar mandated. What a sad thing. No wonder so many have grown up in the institutional church and they've come to believe that sex is dirty and gross and shameful. Sex is God's idea. It's his holy creation within the guidelines of marriage. God says it's good. Husbands and wives, indulge yourselves. Instead of being a battleground, the bedroom ought to be a playground. In the early days of grace, when church was rather quite a lot smaller and Debbie and I were the only ones doing premarital counseling, we have a wonderful, wonderful team of premarital counselors today who do that ministry so marvelously. It is awesome. When Debbie and I were the only ones doing that, I noticed a pattern that I sense developing. When we would talk to young couples getting ready to get married, I I would sense that as we talked to them about communication and realistic expectations, they were really, really dialed in. They realized this is important. We're going to need this. And as we talked to them about creating a realistic budget and how to handle conflict constructively, I, I sensed likewise, wow, they really, really were getting a lot from this. They appreciated it, knowing we're going to have conflict and we're going to need a but. Yeah, this is awesome. But I sensed we came to about that last 
time together with premarital, and we started talking about sexual intimacy, I kind of noticed a different attitude. I think some of the couples engaged to be married kind of looked at each other with a smile and said, ah, we'll never have any struggles there. I'll tell you that for sure. But the truth is, many do struggle. Conflict and frustration in the bedroom begins to negatively impact just about every other part of the marriage. So as we go down home stretch today, how can we grow? How can we flourish in sexual intimacy in marriage? How can we be one of those couples where intimacy actually becomes sweeter and more mutually satisfying through the years? As we wrap up, I want to share just a brief acronym with you I just created this week. The ideas contained in this, I suppose, are nothing new, but I hope you can remember this. It spells best, B-E-S-T, and I think if we followed this, it could be a formula for a superb future of intimacy. The B in best stands for believe. I simply want to ask you, do you believe God has a better future for you in this area? You see, I believe that Christian couples should be the sexiest, in the true sense of that word, the sexiest and most sexually fulfilled people on the planet. I believe that. But do you believe God has that kind of future for you? Do you have a vision for your marriage of growing old together and actually becoming better together than you are now? Here's the reason I think that question is important. Behaviors always flow out of beliefs. And if you don't have that sort of vision, that's kind of hopeful, preferred future, that belief that, yes, we can grow in this area, I'm concerned that behaviors may never change. Do you share that dream together? If so, it should naturally lead to a commitment to this second word in the acronym, educate, educate, educate. I committed myself years ago to be a student of my wife. Can I tell you something? I study her. I want to be the world's leading expert in Deborah Keener. I want to be an expert in Deborahology, if you will. That's why I study her so much. And I believe she's made that same commitment to me. Listen, mindsets and habits that contribute to a fabulous marriage don't come naturally for most of us. Ooh, that's good. I got to say that again. Mindsets and habits that contribute to a fabulous marriage don't come naturally for most of us, especially if you grew up in a fairly dysfunctional home like so many of us did. (laughs) We've got to unlearn a bunch of things before we can learn some healthy things. And so I say let the learning begin. Do you really know your spouse's deepest fears and insecurities? Your spouse's deepest, greatest hopes and dreams? 
If not, then let the learning begin. I'm suggesting that you as a couple dedicate yourselves to being lifelong students of each other. You be the world's leading expert when it comes to knowing and understanding your mate. Believe, educate. Here's the third word. Here's the third word. It's a good formula. Serve. Serve. Dr. Jared Pingleton, one of the resources we gave you in the first week, says great sex comes from being a great lover. And great lovers are not born, they are made. And then he has a humorous illustration. He says, men... If I could give you an ironclad promise for the most scintillating, satisfying, sensational aphrodisiac for your wife, how much would you pay? $79.95 plus shipping and handling. Would you pay $799.95 or would you pay $7,999.95? Oh, it's going to cost you a lot more than that. He says, but the thing is, it's not a deep, dark secret. He said, the most surefire, effective aphrodisiac in the universe for your dear, sweet, precious, lovely, adorable, darling wife is to serve her. To serve her. You know, the greatest teacher and leader the world has ever known actually washed the feet of his students. Did you know that? And that, in a day and culture, when most streets weren't paved, <laughs> and most of them were filled with animal excrement, washing feet was a pretty gross thing. But he served. And it's not just practical tasks that are demonstrations of service. I think for most women, one of the best things you could do is simply listen. Again, like we talked about last week, learn to communicate. Be patient and understand it. Red Book Magazine did one of the most famous surveys of American women ever. I don't know, I still have trouble believing they involved 100,000 women, but the survey says they did. Back in 1975, 100,000 American women were asked about their sexual preferences, behaviors, and practices. This is shocking. It's shocking. They were asked, what is the sexiest thing about a man? What is the number one thing that turns you on, American women? The answer was greater than the number two and number three responses combined. American women said, sexiest thing about a man, the thing that turns me on the most, kindness. Kindness. One of the beauties of marriage is that it confronts our selfishness big time. And it calls us to increasingly figure out how we can best serve our mate. Here's the final word. Believe, educate, serve. Here's the, what the T stands for, treasure. Do you treasure your spouse? Can you prove it? <laughs> Have you cleared your calendar for him or her on a weekly basis? Are you listening, giving undivided attention? Does your mate feel cherished by you? 
Does he or she have to worry if bills are gonna be paid, if the car's gonna run, if the house is gonna be repaired? Is there affectionate physical touch with no agenda? I wanna say it again. The devil does everything he can to get couples to have sex before marriage. And the devil does everything he can to keep couples from having sex after they're married. Married people, don't let Satan get that victory in your marriage. Make a choice today. We're going to have the best marriage possible. Bleed, educate, serve, treasure your spouse. Father, I thank you that your word pulls no punches. It tells us so clearly what your design is. It gives us examples of it, ways to practice what the principles you've given. Father, I thank you today for this study. And my prayer, as it's been all week, is that you would use the truth of your word to lead married couples into growing levels of sexual intimacy. And may all of us have a more holistic, healthy, and biblical view of sexuality the way you've designed it. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.